we have to wonder if we'll ever get through with a thorough reading with thorough, even the thorough, a thorough reading. Even though uh, we've read um, his biography and we read Walden, and now we're reading the journals. So we're trying to do something thorough with thorough. Now we're into sep September 4th, September of 1851, which is uh, in the journals. Uh, the, the journals became more filled out in 1851. So we're already into the fourth section, I think, of uh, just 1851, September 4th. I had been, it had been a warm day, especially warm to the head. What year was the year she was walking with Toro? What? And, uh, the movie we saw yesterday. The what movie? Was she walking with Toro? What year was she walking? The writing. Well, Mary, uh, well, Lisa May Alcott we saw walking with Thoreau, right? Wait. It would have been in the 50s because she's young, so. No, no, he had, she had to be old enough to walk with him and he had to be young and still alive, huh? He was 15 years older or something like that. But we saw him walking with Louisa May Alcott in the woods, which they would have known each other and he knew Bronson Alcott and he and of course she uh, borrowed books from Emerson's library of course that so did Thoreau and what is it um, Laurie or some of her novels uh, they claim are a depiction of characters in the, in the novel uh, is it moods or as depicts, they say, Thoreau? Because most of all American literature is written in, from one town in one decade and, and conquered. She said Thoreau was the real man. She said he was more real than Emerson? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Emerson is more of a philosopher and Thoreau is like a realized philosopher. He lives the walks the walk and lives the philosophy. Where Emerson may have been theoretical philosopher of naturalism, where Thoreau is actually out in the woods. It had been a warm day, especially warm to the head. I do not perspire as in the early summer, but am sensible of the ripening heat more as if by contact. Suddenly the wind changed to east, and the atmosphere grew more and more hazy and thick on that side, obstructing the view while it was yet clear in the west. I thought it was the result of the cooler air from over the sea meeting and condensing the vapor in the warm air of the land. That was the haze, or thin, dry fog, which some call smoke. It gradually moved westward and affected the prospect on that side somewhat. It was a very thin fog invading all the east. I felt the cool air from the ocean, and it was very refreshing. I opened my bosom and my mouth to inhale it, very delicious and invigorating. Though he's, I don't think he's by the ocean, is he? Didn't say so. So ocean water reaching Concord. Concord is not far from Boston. Just looking up Louisa, you see um, in the index to this journals, there's 
Bronson Alcott mentioned uh, there's no mention of Louisa. Hmm. September 11th, every artisan learns positively something by his trade. Every craft is familiar with a few simple, well-known, well-established facts not requiring any genius to discover, but mere use and familiarity. You may go by the man at his work in the street every day of your life, and though he is there before you, carrying into practice certain essential information, you shall never be the wiser. Each trade is, in fact, a craft, a cunning, a covering of ability, a covering and ability, ability, and its methods are the result of a long experience. There sits a stonemason, splitting westward granite for fence post. Egypt has, perchance, taught New England something in this matter. His hammers, chisels, his wedges, his shims, and or half rounds, his iron spoon. I suspect that these tools are hoary with age and as with granite dust. He learns as easily where the best granite comes from as he learns how to erect that screen to keep off the sun. He knows that he can drill faster into a large stone than a smaller one because there is less jar in yielding. He deals in stone as a carpenter in lumber. In many of his operations, only the materials are different. His work is slow and expensive. Nature is here hard to overcome. Stonework is expensive still to this day. You know how people have stone walls in Connecticut? Hard. Huh? It's very hard. It's heavy as well. In fact, it's quite expensive now to get a repair a stone wall. Mm -hmm. mm. You think you should do it as a physical exercise, build a stone wall? <laughs> we could take the Ben from the gym out and tell him to pick up rocks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Anyways, nature is here hard to overcome. He wears up one or two drills in splitting a single stone. He may must sharpen his tools oftener than the carpenter. He fights with granite. He knows the temper of the rocks. He grows stony himself. There's real profession here, a stonemason. He's talking about people with their crafts and their skills. And, hmm. His trend, tread is ponderous and steady like the fall of a rock, and yet by patience and art he splits a stone as surely as the carpenter or woodcutter a log. See, you can develop the ability to split logs. <laughs> Do you know how to split a log with a wedge? <laughs> He never swung a sledgehammer and a wedge with a wedge and split a log. <laughs> I have. <laughs> so much time and perseverance will accomplish. One would say that mankind had much less moral than physical energy that any day. You see men following the trade of splitting logs, rocks. <laughs> who yet shrink from undertaking apparently less arduous moral labors, the solving of moral problems. <laughs> He's saying that people exert far more energy breaking up rocks than solving moral problems. <laughs> you think that's true? Yeah, they're going so crazy. It's easier to split a rock than to solve a moral problem. See how surely he proceeds? He does not hesitate to drill a dozen holes, each one the labor of a day or two for a salvage. He carefully takes out the dust with his iron spoon. He inserts his wedges, one in each hole, and protects the sides of the holes and gives resistance to his wedges by 
thin pieces of half-round iron shims, he marks the red line which he has drawn with his chisel, carefully cutting it straight, and then how carefully he drives each wedge in succession. Fearful least he should not have a good split. Hmm. The habit of looking at men in the gross makes his lives have less of human interest for his us. But though there are crowds of laborers before us, yet each one leads his little epic life each day. There is the stonemason, who, me think, was simply a stony man that hammered stone from breakfast to dinner and dinner to supper, then went to his slumbers. But he, I find, is even a man like myself, <clears throat> for he feels the heat of the sun and has raised some boards on a frame to protect him, and now at mid-noon I see his wife and child have come and brought him drink and meat for his lunch and to assuage the stoniness of his labor and to sit to chat with him. Yeah, back on the farm we used to work in the fields and then mom would come with a might come or dad or somebody with a pickup and bring lunch. <laughs> and we'd have lunch in the field. <laughs> You could sit outside the tractor and have lunch. Uh -huh. There are many rocks lying there for him to split from end to end, and he will surely do it. This only at the command of luxury. Since stone posts are preferred to rot wood. But how? Wow, a stone post. Hmm. Well, that's for, they have those for hitching the horse up. Hmm. But how many moral blocks are lying there in every man's yard, which he surely will not split, nor earnestly endeavor to split? He's saying that they should be developing their character, spiritual side, and developing their ethos so they can hear the logos. If you develop ethical, develop your moral blocks through um, through moral character, you can then hear the music of the spheres. If you have developed the Pythagorean theory of ethos, then you might hear, hear the Pythagorean concept of the music of the spheres. Uh -huh. But how many more blocks are lying there in every man's yard, which he surely will not split, nor earnestly endeavor to split? There lie the blocks, which will sur surely get split. But here lie the blocks, which will surely not get split. Do we say it is too hard for human faculties? Is it too hard to be reach enlightenment huh? for most people. But does not the mason dull a basket full of steel chisels in a day, and yet by sharpening them again and tempering them aright succeed? Moral effort, difficulty to be overcome. Hmm. Why men work in stone and sharpen their drills when they go home to dinner. Hmm. Don't know what that's all about. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. September 20, 3 p.m. Now he gives the time. Two cliffs via Bear Hill. No, one one of his many walks, I suppose. We're going walking through the woods with Thoreau. As I go through the fields, endeavoring to recover my tone and sanity, to perceive things truly and simply again, 
after having been preambulating the bounds of the town all the week and dealing with the most commonplace and worldly-minded men and emphatically trivial things, I feel as if I had committed suicide in a sense. Hmm. He's endeavoring to recover his tone and to perceive things truly and simply again after having been preambulating the bounds of the town all week and dealing with the most commonplace and worldly-minded men and emphatically trivial things, I feel as if I had committed suicide in a sense. I am again forcibly struck with the truth of the fable of Apollo-serving King Admetus, its universal applicability. A fatal coarseness is the result of mixing in the trivial affairs of men. Hmm. Though I have been associating even with the select men of this and the surrounding towns, I feel inexpressibly begrimed, grim, begrimed. B-E-G-R-I-M-E-D My Pegasus has lost his wings. He has turned a reptile and gone on his belly. Such things are compatible only with a cheap and superficial life. Goodness. I guess you should stay out of town. Uh, you could go back to Walden, I guess. Uh, hmm. Hmm. We're still mo moving through September. Hmm. September 22nd. Yesterday and today, the stronger winds of autumn have begun to blow, and the telegraph harp has soundly sounded louder. I don't know if the telegraph makes a sound. The wire. I heard it, especially in the deep cut this afternoon. The tone varying with the tension of different parts of the wire. The sound proceeds from near the post, where the vibration is rapidly, apparently more rapid. I put my ear to one of the posts. And it seemed to me as if every pore of the wood was filled with music, labored with the strain, as if every fiber was affected and being seasoned or timed, rearranged according to a new and more harmonious law. Every swell and change or inflection of the tone pervaded and seemed to proceed from the wood, the divine tree or wood, as if its very substance was transmuted. What a recipe for preserving wood, perchance, to keep it from rotting, to fill its pores with music. How this wild tree from the forest stripped of its bark and set up here, Rejoices to transmute his music. When no music proceeds from the wire on applying my ear, I hear the hum within the entrails of the wood, the orcular tree, acquiring, accumulating the prophetic fury. The resounding wood, how much the ancients would have made of it to have a harp on so great a scale, girdling the very earth and played on by the winds of every latitude and longitude, and that harp were, as it were, the manifest blessing of having on a work of man's. Shall we not add a tenth muse to the immortal ninth? 
and that the invention thus divinely honored and distinguished on which the muse has condescended to smile is this magic medium of communication for mankind. Uh, Dear, do you think the internet is the tenth muse? Uh, Or communication for mankind is the telegraph. Uh Telegraph. He's talking about the telegraph. Uh, and many things can be amusing because they're beautiful, what they say. Well, he's saying that and the email and Facebook, Google, and Internet, and uh, the telephone is the tenth muse to the immortal nine. No. Uh-huh. Do you think it is? It's like a harp? It depends how you play the harp, can be. Also, mm. to the news. He may just mean the telegraph, as he didn't say the internet or the telephone. Or the telegraph. But he does say it's the magic medium of communication for mankind, the telegraph is. Uh, we could just go back to a telegraph. Uh-huh. You know, it would be good if you can telegraph men. Mentally, we can think of something and send this uh, mentally to somebody who you like. And we do send something. Did you ever get a telegram? Did you ever get a telegram? Yeah. In your life, did you ever get a telegram? Uh, we used to get telegrams. Do you remember for telex machines? Uh-huh. Uh, uh, did you ever get a telex? Uh-huh. In business, you get a telex. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, telegram, telex, or gram, or... All right, so we've discovered what he thought about communication now. September 24th, what can be handsomer for a picture than our river scenery now? Take this view from the first... Conantum Cliff. First, the smoothly shorn meadow on the west side of the stream, with all the swaths distinct, sprinkled with apple trees, casting heavy shadows, black as ink, such as can be seen only in the clear air, this strong light, one cow wandering restlessly about in it and lowing. Then the blue river, scarcely darker than, and not to be distinguished from the sky, its waves driven southward or upstream by the wind, making it appear to flow that way, bordered by willows and the button bushes, then the narrow meadow beyond, with very lights and shades from its waving grass, which for some reason has not been cut this year, though so dry, now at Length each grass blade bending south before the wintry blast, as if bending for aid in that direction, then the hill rising sixty feet to a terrace-like plain covered with shrub oaks, maples, etc., now variously tinted clad, all in a livery of livery of gay colors, every bush of feather in its cap, and further in the rear of the wood, crowned cliff some two hundred feet high where gray rocks here and there project from amidst the bushes with its orchard on the slope and to the right of the cliff the distant Lincoln Hills in the horizon. Is that one sentence? Uh He gets uh, he writes very long sentences. The landscape so handsomely colored, the air so clear and wholesome, and the surface of the earth is so pleasingly varied that it seems rarely fitted for the abode of man. Can you read that what? sentence again? The landscape so handsomely colored? The long one. Uh-huh. Goodness sakes, how long is it? How many breaths will it take? Uh You want that long sentence? First, the smoothly shorn meadow on the west side of the stream, with all the swaths distinct, sprinkled with apple trees, casting heavy shadows, black as ink, such as can be seen only in the cleaner, clearer, the strong light, one cow wandering restlessly about in it and lowing, then the blue 
River scarcely darker than, and not to be distinguished from the sky, its waves driven southward, or upstream by the wind, making it appear to flow that way, bordered by willows and button bushes. Then the narrow meadow beyond, with varied lights and shades, so around its waving grass, which for some reason has not been cut this year, though so dry now at length, each blade, grass blade bending south before the wintry blast, have his bending your aid in that direction. Then the hill rising sixty feet to a terrace-like plain covered with shrub oaks, maples, and now variously tinted clad, all in the livery of gay colors, every bush of feather in its cap. And further in the rear the wood-crowned cliffs, some two hundred feet high, where gray rocks here and there project from amidst the bushes, with its orchard on the slope, and to the right of the cliff the distinct Lincoln Hills in the horizon. That's one sentence, uh-huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Looks about 20 lines long or so. Well, he's just writing in his journal. He can write what he wants. So. The landscape so handsomely colored, the air so clear and wholesome, and the surface of the earth is so pleasingly yeah, varied. You call somebody who is looking at everything that way. Looking at everything? Uh, very attentive. Well, what is a person that observes, huh? Hmm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, he really does look. Uh, I don't think I would look that much, uh, but... He contemplates, contemplates nature. He's really contemplating it. September 26, most New England biographies and journals. John Adams, not accepted. Affect me like opening of the tomb. So not only does he look at all the stuff outside, he's looking at all the books. <laughs> he even reads the history books. He'll research the background of places. September 27th, we of Massachusetts boast a good deal of what we do for the education of our people, of our distinct school system, and yet our distinct schools are, as it were, but infant schools. And we have no system for the education of the great mass who are grown up. <laughs> Apparently, he's saying that adults... People don't continue to learn in adulthood. I have yet to learn that one cent is spent by this town, this political community called Concord, directly to educate the great mass of its inhabitants who have long since left the school district for the Lyceum. Important as it is comparatively, though absolutely trifling is supported by individuals, there are certain refining and civilizing influences as works of art, journals and books, and scientific instruments, which this community is amply rich enough to purchase, which would educate this village, elevate its tone of thought, and, if alone, improved these opportunities, easily make it the center of civilization in the known world, and put us on a level as to opportunities at once. With London and Arcadia. Where is Arcadia? <laughs> huh? Arcadia is in Greece. Arcadia. We have Arcadia in Greece, but I don't know if he talks about it. Where? Is it an abstraction of Arcadia? Is that oh, Greece? Uh, yeah, in Greece we have. Probably old Greece. Greece the west side of mm. And secure us a culture I want superior to both. Yet we spend $16,000 on a town hall. A hall for our political meetings mainly and nothing to educate ourselves, who are grown up. He's saying they spend a lot of money on everything but the library. <laughs> well, they should spend more on books, I think. Uh -huh. 
Pray, is there nothing in the market? No advantages, no intellectual food worth buying. Yeah, he's starving when he's away from Harvard. <laughs> Have Paris and London and New York and Boston nothing to dispose of which this village might try and appropriate to its own use? Might not this great villager adorn his fellow with a few pictures and statues, enrich himself with a choice library, as available without being cumbrous as any in the world, with scientific instruments for such as have a taste to use them? Yet we are contented to be countrified, to be provincial. I am astonished to find that in this 17th century, in this land of free schools, we spend absolutely nothing as a town on our own education, cultivation, civilization. Each town, like each individual, has its own character, some more, some less cultivated. If they're not cultivated and conquered, then where are they cultivated? <laughs> It's one of the most cultivated towns in America <laughs> at this time, of course. Not to mention they have Nathaniel Hawthorne and Ralph Waldo Emerson and Louisa May Alcott and, and who else? Peabody Sisters or, or uh, who else came by? Huh. Malville? I know many towns so mean-spirited and benighted that it would be a disgrace to belong to them. Do you think a town should be rich in culture? <laughs> I believe that some of our New England villages within 30 miles of Boston are a boorish and barbarous communities as there are on the face of the earth. And how much superior are the best of them? If London has any refinement, any information to sell, why should we not buy it? Hmm. Hmm. Would, would not the town of Carlisle do well to spend $16,000 on his own education at once? if it could only find a schoolmaster for itself. <laughs> Do you think that this need a school for the adults? <laughs> it has one man, as I hear, who takes a North American review that will never civilize them, I fear. Why should not the town itself take the London and Edinburgh reviews and put itself in communication? with whatever sources of light and intelligence there are in the world. Yet Carlyle is very little behind Concord in these respects. I do not know how it spends its proportional part on education. How happens it that the only libraries which the towns possess are the district school libraries, books for children only? or for readers who must needs be written down to. Why should they not have a library, if not so extensive, yet of the same stamp and more select than the British Museum? <laughs> He's asking a lot here. He wants it as select as the British Museum. <laughs> you think he's behaving idealistically here? Uh, when you have something that really well, he's idealistic as well as transcendental, and he had uh, the luck of going to Harvard. Uh, and it's not exactly as you put something that's impossible. He's saying they should spend more on books and the library and education. Cultivation. Mm -hmm. Do you think so? Absolutely. It is not that the town cannot well afford to buy these things. It is, but it is unaspiring and ignorant of its own wants. It sells milk, but it only builds larger barns with the money which it gets for its milk. Yeah, well... 
That's the way of most of the world. September 28th, the railroads are, as much as anything appear, to have unsettled the farmers. Uh Our young Concord farmers and their young wives, hearing this bustle about them, seeing the world all going by, as it were, some daily to the cities, about their business, some to California, plainly cannot make up their minds to live the quiet, retired, old-fashioned country farmer's life. They are impatient if they live more than a a mile from the railroad. (laughs) Do you think it's unsettling to have transportation? (laughs) I don't know when they completed the Intercontinental Railroad. He's talking about the railroad to California. Mm-hmm. We don't have a... We're not... We're example of the barbaric... We don't have a basic knowledge of history. <laughs> when did they complete the... Alexa? Alexa. When did they complete the intercontinental railroad to connect the railroad to California from a, the railroad across the United States? Oh, goodness. Alexa. Alexa, when was the railroad connected across the United States? Goodness. Alexa, when did the railroads connect? When did they build When did they con- build the... The first transcontinental railroad was a 1,912-mile continuous railroad line constructed between 1863 and 1869 that connected the existing East and U.S. rail network at Omaha, Nebraska. All right, 69. Pacific Coast at the Oakland Long Wharf on I think it's after the Civil War. You're not very... Well, which just proves that Thoreau's point that us adults are very poorly educated. You don't even know basic American history. We have to resort to the the Tenth Muse, which is Alexa. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, uh, Mm. how much you need... uh, what a brain it is. Well, okay. That you we should have, have, have we should have a concept like a good guess like around the Civil War or something. Yeah, maybe. In context. Yeah, okay. uh, a survey, oh. I don't know how it could be done during uh, the Civil War. It probably diverted the resources. Uh-huh. Who knows? Uh, It just proves the point that we don't have the good library. September 28th, the railroads, as much as anything. Okay, we read that. October 1, 5 p.m. now, he's giving the time. October 1, 5 p.m. Just put a fugitive slave who has taken the name of Henry Williams into the cars for Canada. This is... He, see, he put a slave in the train to Canada. He's, this is technically illegal. At this time, dear, it's illegal to be to assisting slaves uh, in their escape. I thought so, from the north they didn't They They don't, but he's a runaway slave from the south, and he's assisting under federal law. He's assisting. Violating, throw is civilly disobedient. He's helping a slave get away. Of course, he's anti-slavery. He escaped from Stafford County, Virginia, to Boston last October. Has been in 
Shadrock's place at the Cornhill Coffee House had been corresponding through an agent with his master, who is his father, about buying himself. Wow, his master asking $600. That's a lot of money, dear. Remember how, remember how Thoreau was burdened by the cost of publishing, and it's only like $300? You can't even buy yourself for six hundred dollars. So. What if you had to? Well, let's say you had to buy yourself out, and it'll cost you, let's say, a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> Can I buy myself? I would like to buy my freedom. <laughs> The master was asking six hundred dollars, but he haven't been able to raise only five hundred dollars. Hmm. Maybe he's asked for donations and stuff. Heard that there were writs out for two Williams, the fugitives, and was informed. You said master, and I didn't understand what, what? His master is his owner. His I owner. No, not as master. In the south, he had a master. They called the masters. Uh, he had an owner. Well, yeah, he had an owner. What a pity. Why would they call the master? Well, dear, it's a general word, master. It's a boss man. He's informed by, I heard that there were writs out for the two Williams fugitives were informed by his fellow servants and employer that Augur Hall, Augur Hall Burns and others of the police had called for him when he was out. Do you know the police could come? Police were come looking for Thoreau because he helped a slave. Accordingly, fled to Concord last night on foot, bringing a letter to our family That's from. That's what my father did. Also. <laughs> Your father did. He helped the, the hmm? Jews in Greece. Jews in Greece. Mm -hmm. Your father. You helped the Jews in Greece? Yeah, they used to put them uh, as that, something on them what? to distinguish them. And mm. my father told them to go away because they're going to just, uh, it's not a good sign. He didn't know very well, but he suspected that. Uh, oh, run away instead of put the star on? Yeah, they had to put the star, but still uh, take the star away. Did they run away? They, yeah, they Talking about the Jews in Greece in World War II. Oh, your father was illegal. <laughs> Accordingly, fled to Concord last night on foot, bringing a letter to our family from Mr. Lovejoy of Comprage and another, which Garrison had formerly given him on another occasion. He lodged with us and waited in the house till funds were collected in which to forward him, intended to dispatch him at noon through to Burlington. But when I went to buy his ticket, saw one at the depot who looked and behaved so much like a Boston policeman that I did not venture that time, my intelligent and very well-behaved man, a mulatto. Hmm. Now, there's one time when throw took a man to the next train station, I think, in the biography, right? Mm -hmm. He was afraid that they would, police would be waiting at the train station, so he went to the next town with the slave. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So it's better for the slave to be with somebody, another white person, and so they think it is his. Hmm? Well, I don't know about that. Maybe. Otherwise, why would he go? He wouldn't defend him in front of the police, but he couldn't. Well, the police are... The police, but, but the police will think he belongs to him, maybe, or he is with well, him. I don't know, dear. They probably know what they're looking for, the police. Uh -huh. October 4th, George Minot is perhaps the most poetic farmer who most realizes to me the poetry of the farmer's life that I know. He does nothing with haste and drudgery, but as if he loved it. That's like my cousin's husband was like that. He loved his work? Oh, he was like a poet. He was doing. 
This is like Dale, he loves his work. He's like a poet. Huh? Oh, I say Dale is a Zen master. <laughs> he makes the most of his labor and takes infinite satisfaction in every part of it. He is not looking forward to the sale of his crops or any peculiarity profit, but he is paid by the constant satisfaction which his labor yields him. He has not too much land to trouble him, too much work to do, no hired man nor boy, but simply to amuse himself and live. He yeah. cares not. I remember, he would just every once in a while he'd get a break and he would always smile and he would smoke a cigarette. And, so. Oh yeah, and this kind of kind of uh, works all the time, but that's sort of relaxed and work. And his house, he used to have almost uh, <laughs> so many animals, each one of a kind, you know. Who is that? Uh, my cousin, my oldest cousin's mm. husband. <laughs> He had a big house with a big... You know how they get this guy. character. And he had a number of animals, all different ones. He would feed them and take care of them. He has not too much land to trouble him. You see, remember how rich expanded and bigger and bigger and bigger yet and even bigger yet. But Dale had a lot of land, but he didn't expand to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. He has not too much land to trouble him, too much work to do. No hired man or boy, but simply to amuse himself and live. He cares not so much to raise a large crop as to do his work well. He knows every pin and nail in his barn. If another linter is to be floored, he lets no hired man rob him of that amusement. <laughs> Yeah, like like uh, the, the same cousin of mine, all of his brothers were in Germany and mm. the sister also. And they asked him to go once to fire, to get a job there. Mm. And he went. Mm. He didn't last it a year. He came back. To the farm, but he, they <laughs> he, never... His, his wife didn't speak to him for a month because he came, he came back. He said, oh, that's not for me. That's not work. Well, Dale was supposed to go to college, but he just came right back to the farm. But he goes slowly to the woods and at his leisure selects a pitch pine tree, cuts it and hauls it, and gets it hauled to the mill. And so he knows the history of his barn floor. Farming is an amusement which has lasted him longer than gunning or fishing. He is never in a hurry to get his garden planted, and yet it is always planted soon enough. And none in the town is kept so beautifully clean. He always prophesies a failure of the crops, and yet is satisfied with what he gets. His barn floor is fastened down with oak pines, and he prefers them to iron spikes, which he says will rust and give way. He handles and amuses himself with every ear of his corn crop, as much as a child with its playthings. So his small crop goes a great way. He might well cry if it were carried to market. The seed of weeds is no longer in his soil. He's like art for him, eh? He doesn't want to sell it. Eh? Remember Dale was... He's it. I used to say Dale was the corn king. You know how you're supposed to rotate crops, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, Dale would just keep planting corn. Oh. Mm -hmm. yeah. But he, he said it was the... He loves to walk in a swamp in windy weather and hear the wind groan through the pines. He keeps a cat in his barn to catch the mice. He indulges in no luxury of food or dress or furniture, yet he is not penurious, but merely simple. If his sister dies before him, he may have to go to the almshouse in his old age, yet he is not poor. For he does not want riches, he gets out of each manipulation. Well, because he is not married. <laughs> he gets out of each manipulation in the farmer's operations a fund of entertainment which the speculating drudge hardly knows. With never failing rheumatism and trembling hands, he seems yet to enjoy perennial health. Hmm. Well. Well, you know how the cold weather builds the immune system, right? They say. 
They even say you have to take a cold shower, huh? While Dale, he'd brag about, oh, well, we just were cutting wood and it was 20 below. We, oh, it's not, it's not cold now. It, well, I remember we cut wood, it was 20 below. <laughs> so that's why he enjoys perennial health. What's perennial? Oh, through the years. Helped over the years uh, from the outdoor work. Mm -hmm. mm. He, sometimes he does a caption of a person he meets. He might he meets these rustic sort of like the Irishman, and the, he he doesn't so much admire like uh, a town intellectual. He likes these. Uh, Real people. Hmm. He wrote more about those natural people. The natural person, the character. That people, well, characters are more interesting, I suppose. Hmm. The contented person. We just read about, what is it? George Minot is perhaps the most poetical farmer. George, M-I-N-O-T-T. On October 4th, we read to October 4th, we read mostly the month of just September. We read about how the magic medium of communication for mankind had become the tenth muse. Do you feel it's a worthy muse, the internet or the telegraph? Or is it trivial affairs of men begrimed me? Do you feel it was trivializing? Huh? And we read about the stonemasons. Huh? Hmm. So we read in just September of 1851 when we had Alexa step in as our tenth muse to answer questions. <laughs> We're reading from the best of the of Thoreau's journals. Well, edited. And with the foreword by Carl Body. Hmm. See, these are the books of other interest here. It says Selected Poems of Herman Melville. These Were the Hours. Uh, Emerson's First Marriage. Walt Whitman, a man, poet, and legend, the half world of American culture. The American Lyceum. These are all by the same author or edit it or something. We still have not, we've done like one month in, uh, we did September of 1851 in the journals of Henry David Thoreau. So we're doing a thorough read of Thoreau and trying to get through it before I get thrown out of this reading. Uh -huh.